Let's read God's word through the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for God's help again. Our Father in heaven, you desire to give good gifts to your children. And if an earthly father gives good gifts, then how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so we pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit now to give us understanding into your word, to be able to interpret it the right way, and to apply it uh, to our hearts. May you give us the spirit to behold the glory of the Lord so that we will be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my spiritual heroes, and most of them are dead, they lived a long time ago, but one of them is Robert Murray McChain. He was a Scottish pastor who lived to be only 29 years old, and he is one of my spiritual heroes probably for the same reason that maybe some of your spiritual heroes have this quality. Uh, it's that he was a man of great faith. He had a gift of faith. And he believed what the word of God said. He believed that these things were real. He believed in the glory of God. He believed that Jesus Christ was a great savior. He believed that God's word is completely true. And that eternity is real. Heaven is real. And hell is a real place. And so you can see that through everything he did in his life as he spent his life and wore himself out until he died at 29. And in the way that he talked to other people, he said things like, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet it makes no difference. Christ is praying for me. He really believed Christ prays for us just as much as if I could walk out that door and turn the corner and see someone on their knees praying. I would believe that they actually are praying. Christ is really praying for us. He also said, live near to God and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. And that seems to be the way he lived his life from what we know. He lived near to God. And so all things appeared little to him in comparison with eternal realities. And McShane, I think, got that from the Apostle Paul. That is how Paul lived his life. He had an eternal reality in his perspective, and he interprets everything in light of what is real, which is eternity. The glory of God, heaven and hell, and the glory of Christ as Savior. 
And in this passage, Paul wants us to adjust our perspective, to have the eternal realities before us. Because it's so easy for us to to go through our week, to live in this world, and to be so easily lost in the fog. And we spend all this time worrying about these things in our lives, things that are going on in our family, things with our work, and we forget what's true. We forget the glory of God is real. Heaven and hell are real. The eternal things really matter. That's what Paul wants us to see in this passage. The main point of this passage, Paul tells us in verse 12, he says that he is very bold. And that's the main instruction that we want to end with today, that we too are to be very bold. And we'll talk about what that means as we go through the sermon. But the reason we are to be very bold, as Paul was very bold, is because there's something going on. There's something real that we don't see day to day. It is the glory of the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit, the effectiveness of the gospel, the reality of the new covenant. That is what makes Paul very bold. That's what we want to see That's how we will be very bold as we hear these things that Paul tells us about with the new covenant. Now let's start looking then at three instructions that he gives us in this passage. We have it broken up into three commands that he gives. Uh, The first one is to be very bold. Again, that's how he starts. And that's what verses 12 and 13 are about. Let me read verse 12 again. It's very simple. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now, you notice his reason there. Why are we very bold? Because we have such a hope. And hopefully you remember some of the things we talked about last week with the word since is connecting us to especially verses 7 to 11. But then he started chapter 3 by talking about how we are living letters of Christ, how the gospel, uh, the Spirit works upon our hearts in writing this letter, which is your salvation. And he worked through the preaching of the apostles like Paul and through those who preach the gospel. Christ writes his letters. And then in verses 7 to 11, he talked about the effectiveness of this new covenant It's not a ministry of death like Moses had. It's a ministry of the Spirit. It's not a ministry of condemnation like Moses had. It's a ministry of righteousness. Through the gospel, you actually can become righteous. The Spirit effectively works to give you the righteousness of Christ. And then he said it's not a temporary ministry like Moses had, but a permanent ministry where you can behold the glory of God forever, for eternal life. And all of this happens through the Spirit working as someone preaches Jesus Christ, the ministry of the new covenant. That's what since, in verse 12, is talking about. Since the Spirit works in the new covenant effectively, we have such a hope. And hope many of you probably know in the Bible, is not a wish, but hope is a confidence, a settled confidence, a bold confidence that you know something is going to happen. You're not wishing that it will happen. So Paul has a confidence, a hope that the Spirit will effectively work through his preaching. Think about it this way. Maybe some of you have watched a sports game uh, on a replay, like a DVR or something like that. And maybe, if you're like me, you accidentally catch the score on the internet somehow. And then you know the score. You know that your team won, but you still want to watch the game. You want to know how your team played and everything like that. And so when you're watching the game, you see that a player on your team gets kicked out. You see that your team goes behind. 
But the whole time, you're not on the edge of your seat. You're not anxious and stressed out because you know that no matter what's going on in this game, no matter how it looks like your team is being set back, your team ends up winning. That's the kind of confidence that Paul means when he says we have such a hope. Paul says, I know how this thing ends. And so when people beat me up, and when I can't make it to Corinth like I planned, and when people in Corinth send me hate mail, I have hope. I do not lose heart. I have confidence that the Spirit is still using my preaching. So, in light of this hope, he says, we are very bold. Uh, now, if you're like me, for uh, most of my life, when I read this passage, uh, I've, I've always loved this chapter. Uh, and I always thought the boldness that Paul's talking about here is boldness to come into the presence of God. Because that's what seems to be what Moses is doing. He's coming into the throne of God in the tabernacle. He comes and sees God. Uh, and we see in Hebrews that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. And so I always read it that way. Paul is very bold to come to the throne of grace. Well, that is what verse 18 is about. Verse 18 is we come before the presence of God and we see his glory. But that's not the boldness that Paul is talking about in verse 12. Paul is talking about his boldness in speaking. His boldness in preaching. One way that you know that is that he's contrasting himself with Moses in verse 13. We are very bold, not like Moses. Well, Moses did come into the presence of God. So, so my previous interpretation would have made no sense. We'll talk about how he was not like Moses. But when he says we're very bold, what he's talking about is what he said at the end of chapter 2. I'm not a peddler of God's word. I stand before people and I don't adulterate my message. I don't water down my message. I don't soften the gospel so that people will like me. The people will hear what they want to hear. But instead, I speak in the sight of God. I know that God is going to hold me account for what I preach. So I'm going to preach the truth and not peddle God's word. And then he basically comes to the same thing in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. So that's what he means. I'm going to openly state the truth. And so remember, what gives him this confidence to openly state the truth and to not soften the message? It's because he knows that as long as he sticks to the preaching of the word of God and the gospel, the spirit will open people's eyes and the spirit will effectively save people and the spirit will transform people. Okay, well now verse 13, how is that not like Moses? He says, it's not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, this uh, verse is a little complicated and I can't get into all of it. It would take a little while to unpack every uh, little thing that it means. But it's referring back to the story of Exodus 34. We talked a little bit about that story last week. So just a reminder, Moses, Exodus 34, goes up to the mountain to get the second version of the Ten Commandments. He broke the first version, so he gets the second version. And then he comes down from the mountain, and his face is glowing. His face is shining with rays. And the people and Aaron are afraid of him. But then he tells them to come near. And he speaks to them with unveiled face. They were able to see his glory. And then when he stops speaking to them, he puts the veil back over his face. 
You know, he goes around, goes along throughout his days, but then when he's going up back onto the mountain or he goes into the tabernacle, he takes off the veil again. But for what we need to know right now, for verse 13, we focus on the, the part where Moses is finished speaking. And so he puts the veil over his face. Now, here's another common misinterpretation that I had was that Moses puts the veil over his face because he doesn't want the people to see that the glow is going down. Uh, that he has to go back to get the battery recharged. And he doesn't want them to, to know that the, the, the battery is losing its power. And so he covers his face. That's not what I understand verse 13 to mean. The word outcome in ESV uh, is better understood as the goal, the purpose. The purpose of the old covenant was to reveal the glory of God. It was for them to see the glory of God. But it says there, it's being brought to an end. The old covenant was being brought to an end. The people, because of their sin, they could not continue to be in the presence of God. And so when Moses covers his face with the veil, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. You guys cannot continually gaze upon the glory of God because this old covenant of God up there on the mountain and me always going up back and forth, this thing is coming to an end because you're sinners. Uh, now that's my short summary of, of how to understand that verse. It would take a, a lot more unpacking to try to explain that better. So uh, hopefully you understand that a little bit. But the point that, that uh, we also mentioned last week was that this old covenant cannot be permanent. People's sin kept them away from the presence of God. That's why Moses is not bold. That's why Moses has no confidence in his ministry. Because he, he comes down from the mountain and he can tell them all the things that they need to do. He tells them the law of God. And deep in his heart, Moses knows they're not going to do this. They can't be changed. And he, he even talks about this in, in Deuteronomy. You need your hearts to be circumcised, which is the promise of the new covenant. You need something more. What a depressing ministry to get up day after day, week after week, and tell the people all the things that they have to do, knowing that they can't do it and they're not going to do it. And so Moses would put this veil on his face, knowing that this was a sign that God's presence, his glory, was one day going to leave them. But Paul doesn't feel that way. Paul is very bold because he knows the Spirit will accomplish its effect. So we're going to come back to the application. What does it look like for us to be very bold? We'll come back to that at the end. Because we need to understand everything else that he's building up, uh, explaining why in the rest of the verses. So let's look now at the second part where he tells us to turn to the Lord in verses 14 to 16. As he's talking about uh, Moses and putting the veil over his face, he's now going to turn this into a metaphor for how our hearts are hardened. As I was thinking about these veils, it made me wonder, what veils do people wear today? And then I thought, well, a lot of people, when they get married, they have a wedding veil. And then that led to the question, why do people do that? It's not really something that people just wear. So why do women wear veils at their weddings? Well, you can look it up on Google, and who knows how accurate Google is, but one of the explanations might be that they used to have arranged marriages, 
and that uh, many fathers would try to hide who the husband was going to marry. So think about Jacob and poor Leah. I feel really bad for Leah. Remember, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and instead her dad switches out the sisters, and Jacob marries Leah. Uh, how, how Jacob didn't know who he was wearing? Well, we could talk about that. But one of the reasons would have been that Leah would have been wearing a veil. And so a veil represents this sort of hindrance in the relationship. It's only, even in weddings today, it's only when the, the officiant says, I pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride, that's when the veil comes off. After they've been declared husband and wife. So they've entered into this new relationship, so this veil comes off. And that's what the veil would represent here with Moses. The veil represents a hindrance or a barrier of a relationship between the glory of God and the people. And what is the veil? Verse 14, their minds were hardened. The veil of Moses is a symbol for the hardness of the minds or of the people of Israel. A people, because of the hardness of their hearts, they could not obey the words of God. They could not love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Their minds were hardened. Their hearts were hard. And Paul says, that that was even true at his day. He says there in verse 14, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. In Paul's day, see, he's using this metaphor still, the, the veil of Moses. In Paul's day, when the Israelites, the Jews, read the Old Covenant, the, the books of Moses, they still had that veil, that hardness upon their minds. They could not understand. They would read the words. They, they knew the Hebrew alphabet. They saw all the letters. They, they knew the vocab. They understood what the sentence said, but they could not grasp what it meant. They could not understand that the books of Moses were pointing to Jesus Christ. That the books of Moses were prophesying the new covenant. Their minds were hardened. They just didn't get it. It's like when, when you say to someone, it feels like I'm talking to a wall. Walls don't understand things. Walls don't get it. And I'm sure you have the experience of talking to people and they just can't understand. It's not about the way you say it. You can't say it any better. It's just people's minds are hardened. All of us have minds that are hardened without the Spirit. And we cannot understand spiritual things on our own. But Paul says in his day, the Jews were doing this. He's maybe referring to what Jesus said about the Pharisees in John 5, verse 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that testify about me. They search the scriptures. They memorize large portions of the scriptures. They knew what the Bible said, but they did not see Christ. The veil remained in their hearts. Now we can apply this to people today. Uh, Romans chapter 2 says this isn't just true about Jews or Israelites. Romans 2 says even those without the law perish. Ephesians 2 says that all of us are dead in our sins. And that Romans says we, our minds are hostile to God. So all people, be, because of Adam, because of the original 
sin that we inherit from Adam, we are naturally hardened towards spiritual things. We cannot understand spiritual things without the Spirit of God. And we need to think about this ourselves as churchgoers. We need to stop and examine our own lives. And we need to remember it's great to read the Bible. It's great to search the scriptures. But the people of Israel back then, they probably knew more of the Bible even than we do, but did not have eternal life. Because only through Christ is the veil taken away. It's a temptation for us who, who love theology, who love Reformed theology, who like to talk about doctrine and study doctrine. And we know the Bible very well, and we could argue people into knots over minute theological topics like superlapsarianism. You guys, you guys could probably argue about superlapsarianism. You can raise children to know the Bible very well. But we need to understand that although it is great to know the Bible, only through Christ, only through the work of the Spirit in our hearts do we truly have eternal life. This was true of a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. He grew up in a Puritan home, so he was well taught as a child. As a child, he wanted to be a preacher. So he went off to Cambridge. I think he was 12 years old. Learned Greek, Hebrew, Latin, had it all down, started preaching, and he preached for years and years. And people say about him that his sermons were all uh, battering your conscience, all telling you all the things that you need to do, which means he didn't understand the gospel. But he was preaching, and he knew the Bible. And one day he heard a funeral sermon where he heard the gospel and it started this seven-year journey for him of wrestling, of, am I truly saved? And then at the end of seven years, here's how he finally came to have assurance of Christ. It's when a pastor said this, Don't trust in anything in yourself, whether performance or feelings. Look out and rest on Christ alone. And so it may be a temptation for you to trust in your performance, to trust in your Bible knowledge, to trust in your search, uh, searching the scriptures. But the gospel says, look out and rest on Christ alone. Children, we want you to know the Bible. We want you to know theology. We want you to learn all this stuff you're learning in Sunday school and you're hearing good sermons that are deep in the Bible for many years. But children, that doesn't save you. Look to Christ and rest upon Christ alone because of his work on the cross and rising from the dead. Only that can save you from your sin. So we have this hardened mind by nature, but how does it get taken away? He says in verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. How is the veil removed? How is the hardness of the heart removed? It's when one turns to the Lord. This is a... Bible way of talking about the repentance of your sins. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, when Peter is preaching, he says, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. How do you have your sins blotted out? Repent and turn back. Okay, you're turning back. You're turning back from what? You're turning from your sin. You live a life for your sin. You live a life for yourself. But then you have to turn. You turn back from your sin. But what does this verse say? Who are you turning to? You have to turn to somewhere. You turn to the Lord. 
And so you desire that instead of living and pursuing your sin, you instead want to live and seek after Christ. You want to follow Christ. You want to do his will. You want to please him. In Acts 11, verse 21, when it talks about the, how many preached the word, it says, many believed and turned to the Lord. So faith goes with repentance. It goes with turning. You can't just say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to do whatever I want. No, I believe in Jesus, so I'm turning to him. He forgives me of my sin, and as I turn, I now live a life of repentance from my sin. Does that mean you will never sin again? No. But it means that your general life path may have up and down, may have two steps forward, one step back, but you're taking two steps forward again. And you may take another step back and you take three steps forward. That is a general life path of growing in holiness, turning away from your sin, turning to Jesus Christ. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You see the glory of God. You see the greatness of Jesus Christ. You see his love for sinners like you. And you love him in return. So, have you turned to the Lord? Have you given your life in repentance of your sins, turning to Christ to find salvation? God says, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me today. So we are very bold. We are called to turn to the Lord. And then the third instruction he gives us is to behold the glory of the Lord. In verses 7 to 18. So he says, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then he pauses in verse 17 to clarify for us who is the Lord that we turn to. And so he says, the Lord is is the spirit now here's another complicated one <laughs> that would we could talk about for hours uh, after thinking about it more uh, this week my conclusion is that when he says the lord is the spirit he is not saying jesus is the spirit but he is saying yahweh the lord the one that moses turned to Yahweh is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so we are called to come into the presence of God and turn to the Holy Spirit. And so this sentence tells us, it's one of the places in the Bible that tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. Yahweh is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is God. And we also see in the next phrase that it's a person. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So he is the Lord, and he is also the Spirit of the Lord. So there's some sort of distinction, right? The Spirit of the Lord means that he is in some way distinct from the Lord. So he is fully God. And yet he is a person. And so what we believe about the Trinity is that there is one God, one essence in three persons. And the spirit proceeds, is of, comes from the Father and the Son. The Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you turn to the Holy Spirit, you find freedom from the hardness of your heart. The Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. The Spirit regenerates us. The Spirit makes us alive when once we were dead. Jesus says this in John chapter 3. Jesus says the Spirit gives life. Paul says that even in verse 6. The Spirit is the one who gives life, who causes our hearts to not be hard. So we find freedom from 
from the hardening the veil. And then he says this in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If you can understand verse 16 as talking about salvation, then verse 18 is sanctification. 16 is a one-time turning to the Lord. Verse 18 is a continual turning to the Lord. Just like Moses would go into the tabernacle or go up the mountain and he would remove the veil and he would see the presence and the glory of God, Paul is saying that a Christian can, by the Holy Spirit, turn to the Lord and behold his glory. The word behold means to gaze upon. It doesn't mean look at it quickly, glance at it, but to gaze upon. Maybe you've experienced a place, a mountain range or a sunset that amazed you so much that you stared and stared and you wanted to stay there forever. That's what he's saying here, except even more. That we are to stare at, behold, forever, ongoing, always looking upon the glory of the Lord. As I mentioned last week, this is what heaven will be. I'm sure that there is other stuff to do in heaven. But the main thing that we should be looking forward to in heaven is that you will get to see the Lamb face to face. And then you will see all these sacrifices, all of this turning away from sin, all of these things that happened in my life, all of these hardships, all worth it. Because I see the Lamb face to face. See, you see eternal realities. That's reality. There is a Lamb of God at the Father's right hand right now. And heaven is a real place where if you belong to Christ, you will actually see him. You will actually see his glory one day. That is real, and so you should live for that. It is worth living for. Now that's heaven, but Paul says even now, we behold the glory of the Lord. We are able by the Spirit to understand something. As as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, now it's dim. It's dim. You don't see everything about the glory of God, but you still can see the real thing. You know it's him. You, You see his glories in some way, and you just love to stare. And Paul says, this is how you're transformed. As you gaze upon the glory of God, you are transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. You're here on earth to be changed from one degree to the next, like turning up the temperature by one degree and one more and one more. A Christian should year after year be growing degree by degree more like Jesus transformed into the image of God and how how by beholding the glory of God sin is ultimately it's a battle of your mind you, you make choices to sin, yes. You choose to sin. But you make those choices based on what you think is real. When you choose to sin, you're saying, this sin is more important to me than Christ on the cross paying for that sin. I'm going to commit this sin because 
even though in my head I know that there's a hell, I don't really experience or, or feel, I don't really believe that, that hell is real in this moment. And so I am choosing my sin over my soul, which could end up in hell. Or I'm choosing my sin because I don't really think Jesus is that glorious. I think this is pretty glorious over here. And so sanctification, if you want to grow degree to degree to degree, then you need to get a hold of your mind and set your mind on these things that are above. Think about any sin. When you feel those feelings and thoughts of depression as bad things, suffering comes into your life, and it feels like you're falling into the dark pit, and you would say, I just can't help it. It's just, it just darkness takes over me. Or when you feel the anxiety rising up inside of you, bad news comes, something is ahead that you worry about, and so the, the anxious feelings rise up in you, and you say, well, I don't know what to do about this. I just get overtaken. When you have lustful desires that come upon you and you say, well, I just couldn't help it. I just, I just had these desires that just controlled me. When you see stuff, money, the love of money rises up in you and you just say, well, I see everybody else doing it and I just went after all these things that the world pursues. And you can apply this to any sin. Any sin. When you have those thoughts, you need to stop your mind and say, no, I'm going to behold the glory of the Lord. I'm not going to be anxious about the future. I'm not going to think about desires. I'm not going to think about all the possible bad things that are going to happen to me that are make me depressed. Instead, I'm going to grab hold of my mind and look upon Christ and see his glory. John Owen talks about this in Mortification of Sin. He says, set your faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. By faith, ponder on this, that though you are in no way able, in or by yourself, to get the conquest over your disease... Though you're even weary of contending and you're utterly ready to faint, yet there is enough in Jesus Christ to yield you relief. In your greatest distress and anguish, consider the fullness of grace, those riches, those treasures of strength and might and help that are laid up in him for our support. Let them come into and abide in your mind. You are not a victim of sin. You choose because you choose what to think about. You choose what to care about. You choose what to value. Fill your mind. Get your mind set on these treasures of Christ. Behold his glory and you will be transformed. And oftentimes, it really starts at the beginning of the day. That thoughts won't even come into your mind that day for the vanity of the world because you started that day living near to God. And so you go throughout the day with this eternal reality in front of you. That's how you're transformed from glory to glory. So let's get back to the main application then. You see the, the new covenant. You see the glory of it. You see how when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And how Paul has the privilege of preaching this gospel. You see what a great privilege Paul has 
that as he preaches and he puts in front of people the glory of the Lord, people's lives are changed. People conquer their sin. People are rescued out of addictions to their sin. The Spirit has power to transform people. And so Paul says, we are very bold. We're confident. So, how can we be bold? Are you bold in your prayers? Do you pray? Do you pray for many sinners to be saved because the Spirit has this power? Do you pray for people to be saved, but in the back of your mind you're thinking, that's not really going to happen? Do you pray for revival and actually mean it? Do you truly desire that there would be a revival in this country? You know, I thought, even if, let's say, if there's about a million people around here, even if a million people here were saved, it would still be true that many are called and few are chosen. In the grand scheme of things, that's still only a few people. But why are our expectations so low that we would... We would not even expect that a million people could be saved. Revival could happen because the Spirit of the Lord is powerful. We can be bold in our praying. Are you bold in believing the power of the gospel through the word being preached? Do you believe that People could come into this building, and on any Sunday, people could be saved. Do you not really expect that that's going to happen? Not around here. Do you pray and believe that the Word of God has effects? Do you believe that for their children who come here, that God really is working in their hearts week after week? Or as we go to rescue mission and, and you preach and it looks like, ah, nobody's listening. Nobody really cares. Why, do we really need to keep doing this? It doesn't seem like anything's happening. Do you believe boldly that the Spirit is actually doing things when we preach? Are you bold in sharing the gospel? In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, when Peter and John were arrested and uh, let out of prison or, or let go. The church got together and they prayed, Lord, grant to your servants to preach with boldness. And then in verse 31, it says, and they preached with boldness. And many came to the Lord. If we pray for boldness, I think God will answer our prayer. I don't know how that works for you. I'm not saying put up a Jesus saves sign on your cubicle. Uh, you know, don't be the John 316 guy with the afro. I'm not saying you got to be that guy. But I think I'm pretty confident that if you pray for boldness, it will happen somehow. Somebody might come to you. You might run into somebody. It might be at the store. It might be a neighbor. I have no idea. I have no idea. But if you pray for boldness, the Lord will give you boldness to share the gospel. And people will come to know Christ as Savior. One thing we do know, it's not going to happen if we don't have boldness. And we're not going to have boldness if we're not praying for boldness. God gives boldness. Well, maybe the last way that we are very bold is when we support the work of the gospel. Even if you are not preaching yourself, which you should pray for opportunities to do in sharing the gospel, but even so, you can support the work of the gospel because God does work through preaching. Something like giving your money for the gospel is a bold thing to do because you're living in light of an eternal reality. You could be giving your money to the Steinbrenner family, the Yankees, buying Yankees merchandise 
and all of that is nothing. It's going to pass away, but you could give your money to support people who preach the gospel. That's bold because most people aren't doing that because they don't care. They don't think that's real. You can be bold through your encouragement of those who preach the gospel. You're bold when you come to a 2 p.m. service because the rest of the world cares about the NFL games going on. And you're saying by your being here, I care more about beholding the glory of God than about watching people throw a football. Be very bold. By supporting the work of Christ with your life, with your encouragement, with your prayer. Give your life to Jesus Christ's church because it's the church of Christ that is battering down the gates of hell. So do you believe these eternal realities? Jonathan Edwards prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And everywhere I look, I see eternity. And when vanity fair flashes its sins in front of me, I see eternity instead of the vanity of the world. I see the glory of the Lord. Do you believe it? Do you believe that's what's real? If you do, then you can have this hope and be very bold. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, the glorious God, show kindness to reveal yourself to your people. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who has given us eyes to see the glory of Christ. We pray for your help as we know that we still wrestle with our flesh and with this world and with an enemy who seeks to devour us. Protect us. Give us eyes to see eternity. Help us to fix our minds upon the glory of the Lord. Thank you for the promise that we will be sanctified and one day glorified. Make us as a church, make us a people who are more and more and more close in our likeness to Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.